0: The scripture for today's sermon comes from Mark chapter 3, verses 7 through 19. The word of God speaks to us. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan and from around Tyre and Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. He appointed the twelve, Simon, to whom he gave the name, gave the name Peter, James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name Boazenry, Boanerges. Boanerges. <laughs> I worked on that. <laughs> that is, sons of thunder. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas, and James, the son of Alphaeus, and Thaddeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. This is God's word to us.
1: Thanks be to God. Thank you, Kristen. Good job. We actually worked on that together before this. I was like, it really doesn't matter what we say as long as we say the same thing. <laughs> Nobody will know the difference. So now I don't know what to say. But there I am, Jesus... Uh, <laughs> for those who don't know me, my name is Ryan Geekus. I'm one of the staff members here at Frontline Edmund, and it certainly is my honor to uh, get to continue our series in the book of Mark. And we're looking at Mark 3, 7 through 19, as was just read. Um, some of you also might be wondering what we have done with our lead pastor, David Adair. Um, and the reality is, uh, we staged a coup. <laughs> and... Um, He's somewhere safe, we're feeding him, and, uh, but he made some decisions about coffee and stuff that we didn't like, and uh, when he repents, we'll release him. Not really. Um, now he's, uh, he has been away at the Acts 29 Lead Pastors Retreat, um, which is wonderful, and then he's taking a week. This week with his family camping, um, I think somewhere in northern New Mexico. So you can pray for him that he would be refreshed and restored um, as well. So in his memory, um, I want to ask you to pray for me as I pray for you. Father, we thank you um, for your new mercies this morning. We thank you for all that you've done for us in Jesus. And I pray, God, that we would this morning drink deep from your well of grace, and of mercy, and your kindness, which leads us to repentance, and that you would teach us and show us what it really is to follow you and to be changed by you. I ask, God, that you would give us hearts of flesh instead of hearts of stone, um, that we would receive your word this morning, and the Holy Spirit, you would move in power. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, we have all heard and probably seen uh, the insanity of paparazzi, right? Um, of those stalking and following the famous in order to feed our cult, cult, what seems to be our culture's incurable desire for tabloid news. And so we've seen crazed fans trying to touch or even get a glimpse of their cultural idols of somebody famous. One of the most famous examples of this is Beatlemania. Um, you've probably heard of this and seen pictures of it. I was going to show a video, but it was kind of disturbing, so I wanted to spare the children. And, uh, but um, there was actually one quote that stood out to me. It says, the most devoted fans wanted more than concerts. They craved encounters and artifacts. I still own one of the blank pieces of paper that rained down on fans waiting outside the band's New York hotel one day in 1964. Quoting, if they had touched it, we wanted it. And so, I'm going to put up a picture of Ringo Starr here. Yeah, there he is. I imagine that's what he looked like, you know, as they're all going around him. But when we think of Jesus and the crowds that followed him, what, what often comes to mind isn't a mob of fans. What we think about is possibly Jesus sitting on a rock, maybe a little lamb or two in tow. Um, A few obedient children sitting around him and an eagerly eagerly listening crowd hanging on his every word. Um, But what is being described in Mark chapter 3 is not that crowd. He certainly did have crowds who were eager to hear from him. But today, the crowd that we see is very different. Let's look again at Mark 3 verse 7. It says, Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea. In Jerusalem, in Idumea, and from beyond the Jordan, and from around Tyre and Sidon. And when the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. This great crowd that was following Jesus had come from long distances, some of them over a hundred miles, which is a long ways, especially back then. Why? Jesus was the next big thing. They had heard of his miracles, and news was traveling fast across the region, and they came to get something from Jesus, to be healed, delivered, or even just to see him. This was more like a mob of diseased and demonized people who had traveled long distances, and as verse 10 says, they pressed around him to touch him. It's less like the paintings that we've seen of Jesus and more like a scene from The Walking Dead, (laughs) Jesus even had his disciples ready with an escape boat so that he wouldn't be crushed by him. Can you imagine that? One of his disciples sitting out in the boat. Maybe put up that picture of Ringo Starr again. I think that maybe was what Peter looked like sitting in the boat, like, (laughs) watching the crowd going, I don't know what's about to happen. (laughs) But in in the Hellenistic Greek culture that Jesus found himself in, there were people known as divine men. And so these were men who would be perceived as performing miracles. They were often just magic and deception. And the same miracle or deed that might be interpreted by some as a miracle would be interpreted by others as just magic. And so for many, they would have thought Jesus was just that. And they would travel these long distances for a chance, just the chance of being healed. In reality, they didn't care who Jesus was. This crowd didn't care who Jesus was. They just wanted to be healed. But the Hellenistic divine man was not and is not a true or sufficient description of Jesus or his ministry in those days. There is a cosmic cosmic difference between these divine men and the true Son of God. And as we see in our text this morning, even the demons recognized him as such. As a matter of fact, it was only the demons who recognized him as the son of God. The false divine man would have welcomed any opportunity for anyone to to affirm their divinity. Even a demonized person or a crazy person, they would have welcomed the affirmation to be the son of God. But Jesus, we see, does the opposite and he silences them which is what evil happens to evil anytime it's in the presence of God. Evil is silenced. And he silences them because it was not yet time for it to be revealed. So even more compelling is that the entire narrative of Jesus in the New Testament in contrast to these divine men is one of humiliation. From a humble birth amongst animals, life as a common carpenter, a man betrayed by his friends for their own gain or denied out of fear for their own lives. He was mocked, beaten, and we know ultimately murdered. All because, as the demons proclaimed, as they fell down before him amongst this crowd and proclaimed, truly, you're the son of God. And this threatened the religious elite and the religious systems of their day. And so the crowds that came to see Jesus did not know this about him. They just knew that they might be able to be healed or delivered. It had not been revealed to them. They were not following him because of who he was, but because they wanted something from him. And Jesus didn't come to build a crowd. It wasn't Jesus' aim to build this crowd of people to follow him. The crowd doesn't even really want him. They want to be healed, which in and of itself is not bad. And throughout the gospel accounts, we see that when the crowd grows larger, Jesus either says something hard in order to cause the crowds to shrink, or he withdraws. In this case, he withdrew. And the crowds would do whatever it takes to get what they want, even if that meant that they would crush him in the process. And Jesus was at risk of being crushed that day. And it was also true that Jesus loved healing the sick. He loved healing the sick. He loved delivering people from their demonic oppression. But it was always so that he might proclaim the kingdom. Jesus' message was the kingdom of God. The kingdom is at hand. And so Jesus would not be crushed that day. But we do know that one day he would be crushed. Let's look at Isaiah 53, 4 through 5, where it, his crushing would be the fulfillment of these very words. And it says, Surely he has borne our griefs and he's carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed. For our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds we are healed. At the right appointed time. At the right place. Jesus would. Key word here. Willingly be crushed. He would one day willingly be crushed. Not by crazed fans seeking to touch him but he would die a criminal's death in our place and pay the penalty for our sins. The true Son of God, the founder and the perfecter of our faith, who for for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated even now at the right hand of the throne of God. Jesus was in control, and he would die on his terms for his ordained purpose, for the joy set before him. And what was the joy that was set before him? It was you and I. It was you and I. It was his inheritance in the saints. Jesus was not looking for a crowd that day. He was looking for disciples, those who would follow him, those who would be transformed by him and be sent by him in power. And so today there's four things that we're going to look at that describe what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. And I hope that these fall on soft hearts and fresh ears this morning. Um, I, I was thinking about this just in between the services. There was a time when I really got annoyed by the word disciple, and I was always hearing, we wanna be disciples, you need to be disciples. I was always hearing this word, and the word kind of annoyed me, but it was, at the heart of it was the reality that I didn't really know what it meant. It was a word that felt like it was just Christianese or something foreign. But it is what God has called us to. And my hope this morning is that in this text we see what it truly means to be a disciple of Jesus. And so I want to read this statement. And this is the statement we're going to unpack over the next few minutes. Here's what it is to be a disciple. We are called by Jesus for communion with Jesus in order to be conformed to Jesus For the purpose of being commissioned for Jesus. And so let's take this one piece at a time. Number one, we are called by Jesus. In verse 13, we see that Jesus was able to withdraw from the crowds onto a mountain. And it says, He went up on the mountain and called to Him those whom He desired, and they came to Him. You see, Jesus is the one who calls His disciples. If we are in Christ Jesus, it is not because of any decision, work, or merit of our own doing. Nothing that we could have ever earned or worked up or created on our own. It is because Jesus called us those who he desired. And his call is irresistible. We see it over and over again. This was very different from the traditions of that time. It was common for disciples... To seek out the rabbi, not for the rabbi to seek out their disciples. And similar to the way that we would apply for an internship or a school. They would apply to study with their disciples. But Jesus does the opposite. He recruits his disciples and all of them accept it. (laughs) All of them accept it. Those whom he calls, they accept his call. And we see over and over again people forsaking their former life to walk with him. It's a small glimpse of what Jesus does for all who come to faith in him. The body of Christ, his church, is made up of individuals whom he desires and have been called to belong to him, to follow him, and to learn from him. Friends, it is Jesus alone who saves, and his invitation is to all who would receive him. And so even if you're here today, the invitation is the same as it was 2,000 years ago, and that's to come to Jesus and to follow him as his disciple. Number two, we are called by Jesus for communion with Jesus. Next, it says that Jesus appointed 12, whom he also named apostles. The Greek word translated, which is a very good pastoral trick here. I'm going to teach you some Greek. The Greek word translated as appointed also means to make something new or to create something. It's the same word used in Genesis 1-1 in the Greek Old Testament when it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. The reason this is important is because when Jesus appointed his apostles, he was making something entirely new. He was creating something out of nothing. He was inviting them into union with him. And in that moment, he made this small, intimate group of men the church, the body of Christ. He inaugurated his body, the church. It's fascinating to comprehend the fact that what Jesus did on that mountain with this small group of nobodies led to over 2,000 years of church history. 2,000 years of church history. It's the reason you and I are sitting in this room right now. Think about that. This moment that we're reading about with Jesus on this mountain with his disciples The thread of events over the last 2,000 plus years has led to us being in this room right now. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. He was inviting them into union with him. We are in Christ, and Christ is in us. And we share this union with all of the saints together as the body of Christ. It is a beautiful and wonderful mystery. But why did he appoint them? Why did Jesus appoint them? Mark goes on to tell us in this next brief statement that begins with, he appointed them so that they might be with him. So that they might be with him. Communion with Jesus. Being a disciple of Jesus is not about what you and I can do for Jesus, but it is about being with him. The presence of God is the greatest gift of the new covenant, but we often attempt to make it more, right? It's not simply enough to be with Jesus. We make it primarily about our morals, either our own morals or the morals of those around us, what's right and what's wrong, trying harder and doing better so that we may earn his favor. We make it about what we have to do and what we can't do, right? Like the crowds, we make it about what we want Jesus to do for us. And so even after the great commission that we'll read a little bit later, Jesus' promise to the disciples was this. We often focus on that first part where he's commissioning us to go and to make disciples. And what does he say at the end? He says, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Behold, I am with you, even to the end of the age. This is not only meant to be our greatest comfort in life, but our primary motivation in life, to be with Jesus. It's the greatest reward in this life. So that we may be able to say with the psalmist, better is one day in your courts than a thousand elsewhere. Or that you are the strength of my heart and my portion forever. That Jesus would be our portion in this life. Number three. We are called by Jesus for communion with Jesus in order to be conformed to Jesus. It says, he appointed the twelve. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter... James, the son of Zebedee, and John, the brother of James, to whom he gave the name <laughs> That is, sons of thunder. Andrew and Philip and Bartholomew and Matthew and Thomas and James, the son of Alphaeus and Thaddeus and Simon the Zealot and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. And so if you remember what we learned about the word appointed earlier, it's actually that he was it's actually that he has that he was making something new. He's not only making something new and in inaugurating his church in that moment, but we see that he makes his disciples new. He makes his disciples new. He called them as they were, but he didn't leave them as they were. What good news is that? He called them as they were in that moment, but he didn't leave them as they were. The all-too-real reality is that this doesn't happen overnight. We know that we don't change at the pace that we would like to change, right? And it often doesn't happen easily. It's often in the midst of hardship and suffering and difficulty, things outside of our control, injustices. Our sin is often right in front of us. We become discouraged because we aren't fully who we ought to be or who we want to be. But friends, if you are in Jesus, there is hope. Because what we are now is not what we are going to be. What you are now is not what you are going to be. Your life in Jesus is not static. You will not stay the same. He will complete the work that he has begun in us. And as we said before, we know that all things are not good, but he does work all things for the good of those who love him. And he is doing that work in you at this very moment. So be encouraged. Have hope. and While we aren't there yet, we most certainly aren't where we were when we began to follow him. If we reflect on our lives and pause and think to the moment, if you're in Jesus, that you were called and received his call, by the grace of God, I'm not the man that I was over 20 years ago when I gave my life to Jesus. I'm certainly not where I want to be, faced with it daily, but I'm certainly not where I was. And so let's consider even the apostles. John, who's mentioned in there, goes from being a son of thunder to what is, all, what is later known as the, he's the apostle of love, the one whom Jesus loved. Peter goes from getting it really wrong to becoming the pillar of the early church. Thomas, who doubted Jesus, took the gospel as far as India, where to this day there are Christians who still exist because of his commitment to the gospel and the spreading of the gospel throughout the earth. The disciples go from fleeing in fear to boldly facing their own martyrdom for the sake of Jesus. Without fail, these disciples truly do become like Jesus in every way, healing the sick, casting out demons, teaching with authority, caring for the poor, facing persecution and even death. Jesus calls us And he makes something of us. Being like Jesus is not a prerequisite to coming to him. It's not a prerequisite to discipleship. It's the result of discipleship. Hear that. Being like Jesus is not the prerequisite to being his disciple. It's the result of being his disciple, of walking with Jesus. If you're discouraged this morning about your maturity and your growth in Jesus, take heart. Before you were ever a sinner, you were loved. And he thinks much more of you than you think of yourself. Jesus thinks much more of you than you think of yourself. Number four, we're commissioned for Jesus. Look at Mark 3, 14 through 15, it says, And he appointed 12, whom he also named the apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and to have authority to cast out demons. We are called by Jesus for communion with Jesus in order to be conformed to Jesus for the purpose of being commissioned for Jesus. Jesus' invitation into him was and is also a commissioning to go. We see it over and over throughout Scripture. To be in Christ is to be a follower of Christ, is to be on mission with Christ. In Matthew 28, in what's called the Great Commission, it says, Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. We have been sent with power to preach the gospel, and as we say often around here, to push back darkness. One of the most amazing things about the gospel is that Jesus has entrusted us with his ministry. He has entrusted us, his church, with the spreading of the gospel and the advancement of his kingdom in the earth. He's not only entrusted us with it, but he's also empowered us to fulfill his calling. We're not just set out and said, Good luck. (laughs) He's invited us to do the very things that he was doing in the Gospels. And the beauty of it all is that it is guaranteed, guaranteed to be successful. It does not mean that all will come to faith in Jesus and that every person that we share the Gospel with will come to faith in him. But we do know that his kingdom will not fail. His kingdom will not fail. If we have sung so many times, and as we're going to sing later on today, this gospel truth of old, it shall not kneel, it shall not faint. It shall not kneel, it shall not faint. His kingdom will prevail. His kingdom will win the day. And in the face of... Of demonic oppression in the face of evil, evil will be finally silenced once and for all. Which brings me to one final observation from our text, and one that I think could easily be missed. And this—the the last apostle mentioned was Judas Iscariot, who it says betrayed Jesus. Mark didn't have to mention Judas, and you have to imagine Mark. Um, had to have felt betrayed by Judas as well, as well as all the other apostles. He had betrayed the very cause and the person that they had given their lives to. But I think it's significant that he did mention Judas. You see, it was Judas who betrayed Jesus with a kiss on the night that inaugurated the new covenant. It was with a kiss that Jesus was betrayed by his his disciple and his friend that actually inaugurated the new covenant. What the enemy meant for destruction, for the destruction of Jesus, was actually used to fulfill his rescue mission for all mankind. That should be encouraging to us this morning. His kingdom cannot fail. No matter what you're facing or what you have faced in this life, no matter what our society reports about the failures of Christianity, and there are many, No matter your own personal failures, Jesus did not fail. Jesus is not failing at this moment, and he will not fail in the future. His purposes cannot be stopped. The kingdom that Jesus inaugurated and came to proclaim is a very real and a very present reality that will one day be consummated in his return. This is our future hope as Christians, and it's your future hope as a Christian. The work that he has begun in you, he will complete. He will finish it. He is not leaving you in the midst of your junk. He is not leaving you in the midst of your suffering. He will work all things for the good of those who love him. My deep desire is that as we hear this message that our hearts are filled with hope as we look upon Jesus. If you notice this, this statement that I've that, that I've read, that we're called by Jesus for communion with Jesus in order to be conformed to Jesus for the purpose of being commissioned for Jesus. What is the common thing in all of this? It's Jesus. Jesus is doing this. Jesus calls us. It's in his very presence that we are restored and renewed and we find the deepest satisfaction. It's Jesus who, by the power of the Holy Spirit, changes us and transforms us. And it's Jesus who empowers us and sends us to spread the good news of his gospel. And so, Christian, friends, rest easy. Lean on your Savior. Trust in him. And if you're here this morning and if you've never responded to his call, then our invitation to you is to respond. And my prayer is that our hearts would be enlivened to the reality of the gospel, to all that God has done for us in Jesus, through his life, his death, his resurrection, and our future hope in his return. Jesus calls us. Jesus is with us. Jesus changes us. And Jesus gives us everything we need to walk out this life. Would you stand with me as we pray? Father, we thank you for all that you have done for us in your Son. That through his life, his death, and his resurrection, we have eternal hope. Not based on anything that we could have done, that we have done, but simply because you desired us and that you've called us. I thank you for the deep work that you're doing in each one of us, and I pray. For those who are walking in the midst of suffering and pain and loss, and and hope seems to be something that's unattainable, I pray, God, that right now that you would minister to them. Lord, I pray that you would fill us with your spirit and that you would renew the conviction and the call to go to preach and proclaim the gospel, the good news to a world who so desperately needs it and that we would do so full of your power and that you would enable us to push back darkness in our city. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen.